So we are continuing with our sermon series going from cover to cover of the Bible. Uh, If you have not yet grabbed one of these beautiful uh, bookmarks for your Bible, go ahead and grab one and you can follow along at home while we're going through. And so now we've reached the end of the first book. We've made it one book in. Good job. Uh, Fortunately, most of the books will not be a month and a half uh, long, but Genesis just has so many good formative stories that it uh, really have to dwell and sink our teeth in here. And does this story have some stuff to sink our teeth into? Uh, Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, it's this ancient Jewish novella. It's just plain a great story, a great read. Uh, I commend it to you. It took me just under an hour to read the entire thing. Um, so let's dive in and uh, flesh out some of the contours of this story to complexify it. So we left off last time with Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And Jacob had a son. Well, 12 sons and one girl, large family. And now the second youngest was a lad named Joseph. So now keep track of this. Our first question Is Joseph the victim here? Let's keep track of that. So Joseph has some dreams and tells them to his brothers. The first one is uh, he's a sheaf of uh, wheat, and there's 11 sheaves of wheat bowing down to him. And then there's a second dream that he's there, and the sun and the moon and 11 stars are all bowing down to him. So clearly, whatever the heck they mean, there's something about the family being subservient to David. Uh, No, not to David. Oh, wow. Joseph. This is part of the issue of going through the Bible as I lose track of the names. Joseph. All right. And and how do you think that went over with the brothers? These kind of uh, dreams. Uh, This is the runt of the litter. Daddy's favorite little child. And to top it off, Dad went and got him this big, long, flowing, ornate robe uh, to wear. And uh, can you imagine who will not be doing manual labor with the family in the big, long, fancy robe that's super expensive? It didn't go over well with the brothers. So they beat him up and sold him into slavery, which was actually not as bad as their original plan of killing him, so I guess it works. Uh, So back to our question. Is Joseph the victim here? Well, he gets hauled off to Egypt in slavery, where pretty soon he hits rock bottom. He's sitting in prison, probably bored. It's dank. Just hanging out. And he starts talking to two prisoners who were part of the king's uh, court. Part of the king's court. And these two servants have dreams Uh, they don't understand. And so Joseph goes ahead and, just like with his dream, interprets it for them. One is that the dreamer will die. Lovely dream. The other is that the other will live and become part of the king's court again. The one who went free eventually remembered to tell Pharaoh, well, you know, we've got this guy down here who's brilliant at, you know, understanding dreams, which is convenient because Pharaoh just had a dream. Are you seeing a pattern? Yeah, so Pharaoh just had a dream. 
which told him, according to Joseph's interpretation, that there were going to be seven years of bumper crops and then seven years of famine. Well, uh, so Pharaoh needs to save up his grain stores, right, to prevent the famine. Well, Pharaoh happens to like this whole seeing into the future thing, and so he promotes Joseph to the second highest in the land. So apparently, uh, within about an hour, Joseph went from prisoner and slave to, you know, vice president. Not a bad hour, I might say. And so Joseph rules over all of the food stores of Egypt, of the superpower. Gets them stocked up. Seems innocent enough, no? I mean, making sure people don't starve to death is usually a good thing, usually. But keep thinking through how you feel about Joseph. Because he builds up these stores, and then the famine hits. And uh, once people start running out of food, he opens up these grain stores to feed the people for a price. They have to pay for this food, and they do, because, you know, what's giving away a little money if you don't starve to death? You know, it's a worthwhile trade-off. But the famine is seven years long, and these are farmers. And that means that these farmers can't grow anything to make income to buy food, so they run out of money. And then Joseph, magnanimous chap that he is, he says, don't worry about it, you don't have any more money, I take livestock too. And then they burned through their livestock and came crawling back to him and said, we're out of stuff to sell and we're about to starve to death. Take our land and our bodies just give us food. And so, Jace, uh, and so Joseph graciously takes them all as slaves and all of their property and levies a 20% tax on everything that they produce. And in return, they get enough food to weather the rest of the famine. So think about this again. Let's put in ec- economic terms. All right. Joseph used insider trading to create a monopoly on food, an essential commodity, literally centralizing power to the elites and making Pharaoh filthy rich, all at the expense of the common people. Is it any surprise that Pharaoh loves Joseph? And just note that Joseph attributes this meteoric rise in the Egyptian empire to God's presence and blessing for him. Interesting, no? Now, among those coming down to avoid starving from death are Joseph's brothers, the same ones that beat him up and sold him into slavery instead of killing him. Those fine folks. And they come begging and groveling, wanting to pay for some food. Now, Joseph recognizes them but they don't recognize him. And so he leads them on a torturous psychological manipulation. He accuses them of being spies and rails against them. And then they stammer out, no, we're not spies, we're just lowly farmers. We're just trying to buy food and not starve to death. But Joseph kept up this act, and he threw one of his brothers in prison 
until they came back with all the brothers to prove that they're not spies. Side note, how the heck does that prove that they're not spies, that they have their whole family with them? Anyway, okay, so they come back down with their youngest brother, Benjamin, the whole family except for the dads together, pleading, can we please get our brother out of jail and not starve to death? And so Joseph finally, graciously, sends them off with food and happens to plant one of his silver cups in Benjamin's bag. And then he sicks the palace guards on them to go accuse them of stealing silver cups. So Joseph brings them back and starts railing against them, if you see a theme emerging. But then he finally breaks. He can't keep up the ruse any longer. He breaks down, and to the astonishment of the brothers, he reveals his true identity, and then he brings all of them down to Egypt to live with him, and they all live happily ever after until they become slaves. But that's next week. So so what do you think about Joseph? Curious character, no? Curious character. Just like we noted last week, historically interpreters have been very insistent that since he's a very big character in the Bible, Joseph must have been the good guy. They try to figure out how his story was really that of a good and a morally upright person who was blessed by God for his faithfulness, blessed with a rise in power and money. So ignoring the fact that that sounds suspiciously like the prosperity gospel, where if you're faithful, you get rich. So ignoring that, Christians have been very concerned about making him the model of virtuousness. But at the very least, this is not the only way to read the story. It's a novella, dang it. Uh, We don't read Charles Dickens or John Irving or Virginia Woolf and expect flat, one-dimensional characters. Uh, No, we expect realistic, dynamic, complex, multifaceted characters who are complicated and a little bit good and a little bit bad and a little bit who knows. And dang it, that's even true in ancient literature. Oedipus Rex and Odyssey and the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Aeneid, all of these are complex Stories with rich, dynamic, vibrant, round characters. But for whatever reason, we Christians have learned that when we read the Bible, we're not allowed that kind of complexity. The good guys have to be absolutely good. And that has to be because if it wasn't, it is threatening because I've built my faith and my worldview on that foundation. We often don't allow for any sort of complexity or ambiguity in our deepest held narratives. And so we have, say, a perfect Jesus. We have David, the faithful, the amazingly faithful king. We have a radiant Moses. All solid, unshakable characters. But it's the very ambiguity that draws you into literature. 
It's the very fact that there's an unresolved tension that propels the plot forward. Think of uh, Setter House Rules. Wilbur Larch is a complicated guy. On one hand, he's a great moral character trying to improve the world, and on the other hand, he's an ether-snuffing guy who's really messed up. It's this ambiguity, the complexity that makes these characters so real, that makes their experiences so compelling, because our lives aren't one-dimensional. They aren't all good or bad. Our lives are messy and complicated and confusing and messed up. And so when we find literature that reflects that messiness, we're able to connect in a deeper way. It more closely reflects the ambiguity of our experience. And so that's why I love that I hate Joseph. He's human. He's messed up. He's a jerk. He may very well be hell-bent on revenge. And we kept him in our sacred canon. We said that he is worth remembering. The Joseph narrative highlights the ambiguity and ugliness, and it is kept in our scripture. To me, that type of story is infinitely more interesting than a one-dimensional morality tale. So this week, may you see the depth and the complexity and ambiguity and contradiction and messiness of our lives. And may you learn to embrace it and value it and live through it and find God in the midst of it. May it be so.